What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Dina Tyler. Dina is the survivor of a diagnosis of bipolar and psychosis. She's the co-founder of the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network, the co-director of the Bay Area Mandala Project, and she's the coordinator of peer and family support services at an early psychosis intervention agency in Alameda, California. So welcome to Madness Radio, Dina Tyler. Thank you, Will. It's great to be here. So, Dina, you have a remarkable story. You went from yourself going through extreme states and getting a diagnosis of bipolar and psychosis and really struggling for a long time with with isolation and going into other worlds. And then you were able to move through that and go through a recovery process. And now you are working in the system, helping people, reaching people who are going through their own psychotic experiences. And we're going to be talking about that and also talking about your innovative work in the San Francisco Bay Area, starting the uh, Hearing Voices Network, and also gathering together an incredible group of people to develop a whole alternative treatment system proposal called the Mandala Project, which is starting to get a lot of, of interest and support in the Bay Area. So we're going to be talking about that as well. But maybe we could just begin by, can you tell us something about your own experiences with altered states? How did you first start to go through things that might later get called psychosis and that later got you involved in the mental health system? So I guess things started when I was really young, but I never really considered these things as voices or anything outside of the ordinary. What I had started to experience when I was really young was um, voices that would yell at me. They would say, Dina, you're bad. And they would just constantly be attacking me and being really, really mean to me. And I was really afraid when I was young. Um, I would spend a lot of time thinking that aliens were trying to stab me um, while I was in bed, you know, just really afraid of ghosts in the house. And this voice that you heard, was it a voice outside of your head or inside of your head? Was it something that you heard or... This voice was really outside of me. It was constantly yelling at me and it had a really loud, booming, echoing voice, kind of similar to what I thought was like from the Wizard of Oz. That's the feeling that I got. Some of the other experiences that I would have, I mean, I would see a ghost in our house. Every time I would be in the bathroom, I would see this um, old woman just kind of looking through the mirror at me. And she wasn't really scary. I wasn't afraid of her, but I wouldn't go into the room that she was in. So my sister was picking up on these things too. So I never really thought that they were out of the ordinary by any means. And my mom kind of really normalized a lot of what I was going through is like, oh, everybody's scared. Everybody, you know, has monsters in their closet that they're afraid of. So I just thought, you know, that everybody experiences these kinds of things. Growing up, I was a very quiet and very, very sensitive kid. There was a lot of arguing going on in the house. There was a lot of fighting. My mom and dad were arguing a lot. My dad would come home from work very, very angry, very upset and raging at us. And my sister would also yell and be right there in the thick of it, yelling and um, being part of all the arguments going on. And I tried to stay out of it. I really didn't 
like it. And so I would spend a lot of time in my room and very quiet. And I tried to just kind of make myself as small and unnoticeable as possible so that I wouldn't really become part of the arguments. Physically, I, you know, didn't eat very much. I made myself physically very small and just then, you know, would really try to also just not stand out, um, not do anything that would draw attention to me. Then my sister also, she took a lot of the bullying and things that she was experiencing. She would take that then out on me. She would kind of torment me every single day by saying like, Dina, you're all the bad things in the world. I'm all the good things in the world. Case closed, period. And I'd be crying and saying, no, no, no. But once she would say case closed, period, that was it. I was all the bad things in the world. My dad, what he would do every single weekend, grab all the clutter or toys or anything that was around the house and just bring it down to the bottom of the staircase. And we would have five minutes with each with a trash bag that we had to grab all of our toys and different things or else he would stomp on everything and throw it all out. And um, so it was just this like heightened, heightened level of like stress that I was under like just always really being afraid and like really scared to to make any missteps because I didn't know when the ball would drop and there would be anger and yelling and you know whether it was coming from my dad or my sister I remember this it felt like it was every night but it probably was not my dad would be coming down the hallway and I would hear him beating her with the belt in her room next to mine and just hearing her crying and screaming and then I would hear him coming down the hallway towards my room and I remember my mom being in front of the doorway saying no no she's too young and like really blocking him from coming in so I really never got hit but it was just all this fear and hearing like what was going on and just the imagination like my mind just went with all of this like what was going on? What was he doing to my sister? What was, you know, what was going to happen to me? And so, yeah, I became where I um, didn't speak for a long time. And I actually decided to be mute for um, what I remember was three weeks. I decided to just not speak and not speak at school, not speak at home. And no one noticed. That's how little I was speaking is that nobody actually noticed that I was on purpose not trying to speak. So it kind of just made me think, well, this feeling of do I actually exist? I started like feeling like I'm going through this floating feeling of like not really feeling real, like not really feeling like I have much to add to this world and that I'm just existing. And yeah, I just remember that feeling so much like of really, really wishing I could be mute so that I didn't have to participate in this world, that I wasn't expected to talk to anybody. I really wanted so badly to not have to talk anymore. And this was pretty early childhood that we're talking about. What about when you started to grow up a bit and we're in high school and stuff? Were similar kinds of things happening? Kind of when I hit around 15, I started becoming friends with some of the kids that were in what was called the SED class, the Severely Emotionally Disturbed class. One of the kids was really into things of the psychic nature, metaphysics, healing and working with energy. So I started opening myself up, you know, because I'd always seen spirits, I'd seen things. And so I started to see even more like everywhere where I would look and I would look across out over the ocean, I would just see so many spirits out over the ocean. And then at a, around 15 or 16 years old, I started to have this 
feeling of something really, really evil being attached to me. So over my left shoulder. And so I had this demon attached to me. And anytime I was alone, it would grow in force. And I could just feel his presence just growing and becoming larger and larger. And it would actually like make me physically crouch down under that power. So anytime I was alone, anytime I was um, in the dark, I would just feel him grow. He would grow, grow from my fear. Like he was with me for about a year and I um, went to a psychic to try to have him removed. And I was actually there with my sister and on the way home, after trying to have him exercised from me, on the way home, my sister and I were driving in her car and all of a sudden the car started jolting back and forth and the lights started going on and off and the radio station was going up and down. And I, I have my sister there. She was there as a witness that this happened. And so we freaked out. We got out of the car and ran, you know, flagged down a car to like just follow us home. So we got back in the car and everything was fine. It all worked. But, you know, it was a strange experience of like, oh my gosh, this thing is not only affecting me, it's affecting my sister. It, it It's real. And that night was the first night that it ever came up around from my left shoulder and actually faced me so that I could actually see its face. What did you see? What did it look like? It was just this like very demonic figure, you know, just with its mouth open and its intense eyes, really, really grotesque and and very, very frightening. So then I went back to the psychic um, the next day and we realized, okay, this is not the right approach to take. She decided, okay, he's not going to come you know, leave you easily. She said, instead of the fear that I was having for him, because he's growing from that, he likes that he really is feeding off of your fear. So instead, take that energy and turn it to love and send love to him. And this was really hard because I was really afraid of him. And he'd been with me for a really, really long time and um, was not something that I could talk to just everybody about. Like, oh my God, I've got a demon with me and it's really freaking me out. What do I do? And so what happened when you took the psychic's advice and tried to give the demon love instead of, of your fear? It, it took a couple months to really start changing that like internally. Okay, I am going to be consciously trying to send love towards this thing I was afraid of. But then it, it really started to work all of a sudden. I was just like, okay, you know, I'm just sending respect and love and kindness and, and open heartedness, compassion to this thing I was so afraid of. And all of a sudden he left. He was just gone. He just completely dissipated from me. And then it was really strange. I actually had a feeling of missing him. When he was gone, I was just like, oh, he's not there anymore. Even though as, as um, strange as that sounds. <laughs> and now looking back on that whole experience, what do, what do you make of that? This is where I've had some difficulty with the psychiatric system. You know, what they tell me that it was my emotions, that the demon represented my emotions that I was afraid to face. But I also take it as face value. Like this was an experience I had, you know, as hard as it is to explain to other people that haven't had these experiences, if I share these things, oh man, actually people will diagnose me. People will say, though, that's a hallucination. You know, that's something that other people can't see. But I really did feel something, you know, and there's some truth in that that, that, that needs to be honored, that 
this is my meaning, this is how I experienced it, and this is how I need to then deal with it. Not to just treat that as a delusion, that that didn't happen, that, and I just, you know, at that time, having the psychic help me deal with it in a different way by like sending energy and sending love worked. And so after this successful experience getting rid of this demon, um, what were some of the other things that you that you went through? After having that experience with the, the demon, I really stopped doing anything within psychic phenomenon. I, I mean, in high school, I used to give psychic readings for people and do some tarot, do some palm reading, but I got really afraid. I shut it all off. I stopped dabbling in anything and was like, I, I don't want to be part of this. I, I don't, I don't want this. So then a couple years later, that's when I started then being diagnosed with things is when I actually decided to stop participating in these things in this metaphysical paranormal way is when I started then getting introduced into the mental health system. How did that happen? When I was a senior, I started to take my SATs, but I scored really low. And so the teachers were really concerned with, well, what happened? And I was like, well, everybody was, you know, sniffling, shuffling around in their chairs, tapping their pens. And so I couldn't pay attention. I could not get through the sections and be able to read. So then they decided to have me tested and they found that I had attention deficit disorder. So then I got a prescription for Ritalin. In college, the the first year was fine. I mean, I was taking my prescription for Ritalin and it really, really helped me to focus. I also started to not eat as much because when I was taking the Ritalin, if I ate something, it would not work as well. It would start to make my brain foggy. And so I started to not eat as much and then they would keep upping the dosage because it would wear off. And so then I got switched over to Adderall sustained release. And then it it started to make it so that I was not sleeping as well too. And I would slip into these long periods where I would just stare at a wall and not know how much time had passed, really kind of catatonic states where eventually towards the end, it became where I was not no longer able to hardly get out what I wanted to say. So I would be trying to write a paper and every third word, I couldn't think of what that word was. I was spending so much time in the thesaurus trying to remember simple words that I should really know. I would lose the feeling of needing to eat. Um, I didn't know when I needed to go to the bathroom. I really was very, very disconnected from my body. And I started to develop gutate psoriasis. So there was these little tiny dots starting to develop all over my body and was just like, what is this? You know, really being in this state of feeling like I don't exist, but then actually able to notice my body and seeing there's something happening to my body. And what is this? I don't understand. I was not the picture of wellness at the time. I mean, I was eating one king size nut rages candy bar a day and a two liter bottle of Mountain Dew. And I was smoking a ton of cigarettes and smoking a lot of weed. And also one thing I had had happened is I had gotten a little kitten. So this kitten was keeping me up at night for a couple of nights. You know, she was playing with things in the corner. So then like on the third night, it started to feel like I I no longer need sleep. You know, I, I, I have all this energy. And so on the fifth night, 
I decided, okay, I need to be at work tomorrow. I'm going to take one of my Adderall pills, stay up all night and clean the kitchen. And then I'll be early to work the next day. So this was my plan. So I'm in there all night cleaning the kitchen after five nights of no sleep with a toothbrush, like cleaning the floor of the kitchen, just having all these thoughts about like the world and how to solve war and famine and, you know, just planning out my entire life and how to be happy. And so the next day um, and that morning, I'd been up all night. The next morning, I'm taking a shower and start like having the these thoughts about, okay, well, what does um, my cat need to be happy? Okay, she needs food, water, shelter. She needs love. She needs something to play with in the corner, you know? And then I started relating it to human beings and, and especially myself. Well, what do, what do I need to be happy? I need the same things. I need food, water, shelter. I need love. I need belonging social belonging I need to have a sense of purpose like something to do whether it's work or volunteer and then I was like oh my gosh we also need self-esteem and that was kind of like my light bulb moment because I had been really insecure at the time you know this was like okay if all human beings just focus on meeting these basic human needs then we can become the supreme human being that we're meant to be and that was like oh my gosh I just figured out the meaning of life. And so I got out of the shower and I started calling everyone I knew, everybody at the record store, my mom calling my sister, even my roommate sister who called the house line who I'd never met. I was telling her, I figured out the meaning of life. You just need to listen to me. I figured out the meaning of life. And so (laughs) I was telling everybody to call me back at 4.20 to remind me to leave for work. Telling everybody, call me back at 4.20. And I remember just like having all these ideas like, oh my gosh, I'm going to become president of the United States. I've just figured out everything and (laughs) how to help everyone in the world. And I'm just sitting there thinking about all these things and looking at the clock to hit 420 so that everybody calls me back to remind me to leave for work. And mind you, in that state, I'm still in my towel from the shower in the morning, like my hair is still wrapped up in the turban of the other towel and in no state to leave for work (laughs) at 420. But I'm just staring at the clock. Then I'm seeing it go from 419, boom, to 420. And the phone is silent. No one calls. And all of a sudden, I just have this huge crushing feeling like, oh my God, no one believes me. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. And that pain, that sadness was just like, how could they not believe me? I figured out the meaning of life. How could they not want to know? And I don't know how much time had passed after that, but all of a sudden I started to notice, I looked outside the window and I saw my mom I saw a girl that had worked at the record store and I saw my roommate all talking. I'm like, oh, they've never met. This is strange. Why are they all talking? And then my mom came in and, and she's like, you know, what's going on? Um, I'm like, I haven't been able to sleep for five days. She's just like, well, how about I take you back to the hospital? You know, it will be a nice, safe place for you to sleep. I was like, okay, you know, I, I just need to sleep. So we went to the hospital. So right before that five days um, of being up um, straight, I had been on Effexor and I had decided to come off of my Effexor cold turkey. Uh, So it was about two weeks prior to being up. 
that's something that I think contributed to all of this is um, the, the withdrawing from the Fexer. But when I went into the hospital and I, I was mentioning to them, okay, well, I just came off of the Effexor and, you know, I've been on the Adderall. They didn't seem to think any of this, you know, had anything to do with it. They were like, oh, it just uncovered an underlying bipolar condition that you already had. Anyways, I didn't want the medications. And I remember telling them that I wanted to just write in my journal. And they wouldn't give me my journal. They said, not until you take your meds. We won't give you your journal. Finally, I just wanted to write in my journal. So I was like, okay, I'll take the meds. They gave me my journal. This was like my prized possession that I had. I put a little Edward Gorey sticker on it. And I loved this journal. And when they handed it to me, they broke the spine. I was like, just how could you do this to my journal? I was like, this is my my journal. (laughs) Um, I finally decided to start writing in my journal. And you can kind of see when the meds kick in. It's just like all of a sudden it just stopped. I stopped writing. And then I don't write in my journal the entire rest of the time in the hospital. It was a strange experience to go from being myself. And then I go into this thing where they all don't listen to me. And they don't, they treat me different. Anything that I say is not taken seriously. For instance, I had gotten um, some tattoos done two weeks before having the manic episode, they were healing and they were scabbed over and the tattoo artist is like, you need to keep A&D ointment on it. So I was asking the doctors for A&D ointment and they wouldn't give it to me. And I kept saying, but they're bleeding. And they're like, no, you're going to use it to kill yourself. And just, do you really think I'm going to drink the A&D ointment? My tattoos are bleeding. They hurt. Why can't you listen to that? Why can't you listen to me? But little things like that were just like really dehumanizing. One of the upsetting things that I experienced in the hospital was the woman that I had become friends with decided to get electroshock treatment. So that morning she went in and then she came out. I went up to her to ask her, hey, how was it? And she just gave me this look like, who are you? She could hardly speak. Yeah, she was just really changed, really different. Um, and then she left and she got discharged from the hospital. It was all just kind of weird being in the hospital. And then I found out I'm there voluntarily. I'm like, what? I'm here voluntarily. I'm signing myself out. So I signed myself out against medical advice. Um, I go home and that night my family is all talking about me downstairs in hushed whispers and I could all hear them talking about me. So I decide that this life is not worth living. Everybody's treating me differently. Everybody's treating me like I'm crazy. So I decide to drink everything in the medicine cabinet. And my sister catches me and is like, you need to go back to the hospital. You you have to go back here. You need help. So I said, okay, I'll go back. And so I go back. And then the doctors are like, are you going to listen to us this time? I'm like, yes, I will be the good patient. I will listen to everything you say. I will take the meds that you want. I won't make a stink. I'll, I'll be good. Just help me, fix me, <laughs> whatever you need to do, I will do it. So I go back in. And then this time, I, I just wanted to talk to people. I just wanted to talk about the meaning of life. I just wanted to talk. Um, but They kind of treat you as other, you have to stand behind the line. You don't really get help, you know, or or therapy. So I started making some more friends with people. And I make friends with this older gentleman who 
um, I was talking about my time in that same hospital in the partial hospitalization program. It was the same place. And he's like, oh, you know, I was in a partial hospitalization program too. I have, you know, all my paperwork in my room. Come on into my room. I'll, I'll show it to you. So I go into his room and then he forces himself upon me sexually. All of a sudden, now here's the staff. The staff is like pulling him off of me. And I'm like, oh, now they're like, you know, okay, they're here. They're here to save me. But then they, they, they take me and they're treating me really aggressively. They start to tell me that it's a symptom of my mania that this happened. And I'm 22 years old. I had not been tremendously sexually active. This guy was like in his 50s. And I was like, this is not okay. Then that night, they didn't even remove him from the ward. He's right across the hall from me. And I'm sitting there in my room, really afraid be and that I can't lock my doors because they have to do suicide checks. So he's right across the hall and I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't sleep a wink that night. And all I can think is like, I need to get out of here, but I can't, you know, so what do I do? The only thing I could think of is that was in my power to do was tell them, you know, get onto the suicide watch ward. So um, the next morning I, I wake up and I tell them I tried to kill myself last night and they're like, how? And I, I really, I, I hadn't tried, but I'm like, oh, the bed sheets, you know? <laughs> and so um, then they move me to the suicide watch ward. But before they can fully admit me into the suicide watch ward, they have to strip search me. And so at this point, you know, I am very, very heavily medicated. I cannot express all the things that I want to express inside of me. And, you know, but inside of me, I'm like thinking, I have been here almost three weeks. What do I have? What do I have that you don't already know? I have just these pajamas on. I have nothing. Why? You know, and they, it was just like on top of all this, I, I had this feeling like I'm not going to get helped here. I'm not getting treatment. I'm not getting help. And so then I'm on the suicide watch ward for about three days. And then my insurance runs out and they release me. <laughs> it's like, oh, cured. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. My guest today is Dina Tyler. She's the survivor of a diagnosis of bipolar and psychosis. She's also the coordinator of peer and family support services at an early psychosis intervention organization in Alameda, California. She's the co-founder of the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network and co-director of the Bay Area Mandala Project. So I go to this crisis house and I just want my normal life back. I call up a friend that I'd work with at the record store and he tells me Judas Priest and Iron Maiden are playing tonight and I'm like buy me a ticket like I want to go I want to go so badly these are my two favorite bands playing together oh god I gotta go so I have him come pick me up at the crisis house so I basically sneak out they were not happy that I was leaving but I was determined I'm like I'm going even when you told him it was Judas Priest and Iron Maiden they still didn't understand they didn't get it like yeah they didn't get the magnitude of like how meaningful in my life going to this concert would be so anyways like i i have my friend come pick me up and we go to the show 
So I come back to the crisis house and they are livid with me and they decide to kick me out. I don't get a graduation ceremony. All the people when they graduated this crisis house would have this little marble ceremony where each person would go around the room and say something nice to them because I had snuck out and because I was now this bad person. (laughs) Um, I don't deserve this ceremony. So then I go um, to stay with my mom. And I just basically am taking meds. Uh, now I'm on lithium, Zyprexa, Risperdal, Tegretol, Klonopin. All at the same time. All at the same time. Yeah. The, and would have to go get the blood test for the lithium, make sure all the levels and the Zyprexa. I mean, I gained 35 pounds in three weeks on these medications. I just ballooned. I had been 95 pounds when I started and I got up to a total of 140 pounds, but The doctors would say, oh, you need to be careful what you're eating. You need to exercise more. And I had been anorexic at the time, so I knew it wasn't what I was eating. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not eating much, you know. I know it's the meds that's causing this. So that all gave me, like, I really don't want to keep gaining weight, plus the numbing feeling, plus the, like, where I cannot follow a conversation, I cannot follow what's a TV show, because it slowed down my brain so much that I could no longer make the connections. So I'd be trying to figure out a plot in the story, and it's just like, it doesn't make sense, because I can't remember what happened earlier on in the show, or I can't remember what somebody had just been talking about. So all of those kinds of things um, led me to want to come off of my meds. I was lucky. I was actually very fortunate. My father decided to send me to what I refer to as a therapy camp. It was like a two-week stay um, where they had these therapists. You would do very intensive therapy. I decided to use it as an opportunity to come off all my meds. I was away from my family. I was away from my doctor. So I was like, I'm going to do it. The agreement was if anything medically happens where I need to go back to the hospital, they will make me go back to the hospital. So I was like, okay. So I didn't quite take advantage of all the like therapy that they were offering because I was going through a lot of physical withdrawals, um, very nauseated, um, very shaky, and then just having these kind of uh, experiences where I was not quite in my body, not quite in this reality. I remember going up to a cow and being like, oh my God, this creature exists. (laughs) But I got through it. And then when I went back home, I went to see my psychiatrist and she's like, okay, you're off. I'm not going to put you back on, but I want to see you every single week and just make sure you're doing okay. And at this point, I was so determined never to go back to the hospital. I was going to fight with everything in me to not have to go back to the hospital. So I didn't talk a lot about what I would experience. I suppressed it. and I just acted okay. Like I'm going to just do everything so that I don't have to go back. And I just really learned I needed to take little tiny baby steps to gain back the trust of my family and those around me to to let them know I'm okay you know I was really afraid of adding too much stress into my life that that would cause me to have a break so then I'd go back so I didn't do much during this whole period I just kind of stayed at the house I got a retail job just not that much stress So I want to mention um, one of the things about, you know, coming out of the hospital and really trying to get back that sense of life that I had lost is I tried to go back to the record store that I had worked at and reconnect with a lot of the friends that I had had. But when I went back, I found that there was this thing posted called the Dina Tyler policy. 
I still have the paper. It says, Dina is going through a very rough time right now, and she is not the Dina we all know and love. She isn't taking care of herself and is her own worst enemy. Dina no longer works here and will not work here ever again. If she wants to see her friends, it needs to be after shifts are over, outside the store. I know tough love is hard to do, but it's best for everyone. She needs serious professional help. Anything less will do more harm than good. What do you think of that now, looking back on it? For many years, it made me cry anytime I would come across that because it was not only that I had lost my sense of identity, you know, and had all these painful things happen in the hospital, but now coming out, everybody just kind of wanted to force me back into a situation where I was in the hospital or in this kind of care that I didn't feel was good for me. And all I wanted was my friends again, but now everybody treated me differently. And that huge sense of loss, all these people that I thought were my friends, whether they didn't understand or something like this, where they were told to no longer be my friend and be there for me, was really the hardest thing. And that's actually what led me to do what I do today. I decided when I went back to school, it, it, it took many years, but when I went back, I decided to study sociology with a focus on mental health because I really wanted to look at how the person who's diagnosed is then treated within society. I studied stigma. I studied labeling theory, um, medicalization. This was really my experience. Like, how was I treated now in society after being given this diagnosis? And every time I would tell somebody about my history or about these diagnoses that I've been given, I would call it the switch. I would see it in their eyes. All of a sudden you could see their wheels turning and they're looking at me, they're judging me in a different way and not taking me for the person that I am. They're now looking at me like I'm a diagnosis. I graduated UC Berkeley in 2009 and then um, searching for about nine months for a job and got super depressed during this time and actually um, tried to commit suicide again during this time. But then I found an ad on Craigslist and it was for a young adult outreach specialist. And at the very bottom of it, it said, person with lived experience preferred of the mental health system. And I was like, this could be a job qualification. All this history and all this stuff I've been through could actually you know, make me more experienced and, and get me a job. It was great. I was like, yes, I totally want to apply. So, so I got the job and I've um, been there for over four years. So one of the young girls that I've worked with, um, she has been receiving messages from God uh, telling her to remove her eye or, or stab her eye. And she had discharged from the program. She didn't want to have anything to do with the program. So what I do is I, I, I take a different approach. Um, she was in the hospital and what I would do is I'd go visit her in the hospital every single evening for about two weeks. She had actually chosen, she wanted to be homeless in a very dangerous area and she was choosing not to eat. Um, she did not want any help. Like even we were try just trying to give her a care package, she did not want anything. Um, so then she ended up getting locked up. Why was it that she was resistant to getting any kind of contact from people? Well, I think that she was re resistant to the whole mental health and diagnosis. Um, she didn't believe what she was experiencing was, you know, mental health in any um, way. She was relating this more as this is 
what God is telling her. She had actually read some passages out of the Bible that had said, if your left eye is um, evil, then um, take it out so that you can then enter heaven. So this is what she was thinking is that she has this evil part of her body that um, God will not allow her into heaven unless she removes it. So when I came in to, to work with her, the first couple of times she she sent me away. She she knew that I was from the prep program. She didn't want to have anything to do with the program. Um, first day that she allowed me to, to meet with her, I just said, can we just pray for five minutes, you know? And so she allowed me to just pray with her. And then I left, you know, and then I came back the next day and it started to build, you know, she'd allow me to be with her a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And then, you know, I started to just say, can I share my story with you? And she would say, you know, you're very intense. And I said, well, I get that sometimes, you know, because of my dark hair, my, my makeup. Um, is, is there anything I can do to make me soften my appearance or make me less intense? And she'd say, she said, yes, <laughs> um, you can wash off all your makeup and you can come back in a really girly, frilly dress. And I was like, okay, tomorrow. <laughs> so I came back the next day in the like, pinkest, freeliest dress that I had, and the, the cutest, girliest shoes, and I would show up to the hospital and I'd wash my face. And we just started having a discussion around this, you know, because I never go anywhere without my makeup. Um, I, I was telling her she's actually helping me to face some of my fears and insecurities around being in public. So with this peer support, it's kind of like a mutual relationship that we have. Like, it's not just me one-sided saying, I'm here to help you. She's also helping me in some ways, you know, and just calling out that this is a relationship, that we are two human beings that can interact together um, and affect each other. So um, what was happening is in the hospital, they were medicating her very, very heavily. And one night, all we did was um, she was really, really hunched over and just had drool coming out of her mouth and just a constant stream of drool. And she was just shaking so uncontrollably. And so just one night, I just was with a box of Kleenex and, you know, just cleaning her and capturing the drool that was coming off of her. She just was like, help, you know, that's all she could get out was just like, can you help me? I went and I advocated with the hospital staff, like, I think she's too heavily medicated, you know, and then, you know, eventually they, they decided to bring her off of some of that medication and change her medications. And then it was like a miraculous turnaround. She started doing better. And, um, then she ended up, um, getting out of the hospital and I've just been working with her, um, ever since on what she wants to do in life. But she has not been, you know, talking about harming herself, you know, since getting out. And so it was in the hospital, how are they going to deal with it is just medicating her so that she cannot actually physically um, raise her hand to her eye. Or is there a way that we can work with her about creating a life that she wants to live so that she's not, you know, thinking about wanting to harm her eye or not thinking that something is so evil within her that she has all this, these strengths and this positivity within her and she has a purpose here in life. So that's kind of the approach that I take. So what was the turning point for her, do you think? Getting lowered medications and then getting out of the hospital. I think there was a turning point there where she was just ready to go to the hospital for the rest of her life and she was kind of giving up. But just bringing 
through our relationship, we talk about makeup, we talk about, you know, the fun things in life. We talk, it, it doesn't always have to be so focused on mental health. We talk about life. I think that was also a big thing. Just bringing some of the joy back into her existence has been really helpful. So there was another young man. He, he would come to my wellness support group every Friday, but I started to notice he was withdrawing a lot more. And he's one that you can tell he's, he's hearing a lot of voices and responding to them, um, laughing at them. And he really, really started to, I think, retreat more into this other world. But every now and then I would see him just kind of like glance up at me and like make eye contact. And so it's like I knew he's in there, you know. So what we did is we would just meet for about three weeks. Um, Michael Cornwall came out and we would just walk around the lake. And when this young man would laugh, we would laugh. He was quiet most of the time. Um, He didn't speak very much. But then on about the third week, all of a sudden he's like, what do you guys want to talk about? (laughs) We're like, what do you want to talk about? He's like, superheroes. So it's like, great, let's talk about superheroes. (laughs) So it was just like this really slow bit of him like coming out of it and and being able to interact with us and so I've worked with him a lot since then um, individually and it's just been amazing to see this transformation happen with him where he now talks a lot like he never used to speak and he just was not here with us very often he was just really lost with all the voices But yeah, I've learned so much about him and you can just see this transformation within him. And he wants to become a facilitator for the Hearing Voices movement now. He's really, really active and he actually just got a job. So I'm really, really excited for him. And what about your own altered states and unusual experiences today? Are you still having these different states of consciousness and how do you live with them and how do you work with them? And and what's your sort of understanding of them now, having been through everything you've been through? I still go through periods where I struggle. It's hard for me to sometimes tell when I'm in a true altered state or what's going on because like, it's really, really hard for me to classify things into a, what like with the DSM, because a lot of my experiences, I relate to commonalities that other people have experienced that they don't get a diagnosis for. So a lot of people have seen ghosts. A lot of people have had psychic experiences. A lot of people have felt that they're, you know, picking up on other people's thoughts and they don't get labeled. Um, They don't get a diagnosis. They don't get told they need to be medicated or in a hospital. So I've always had this like, why me? What, What was different about my experiences that I then got labeled? And I often, when I go out and talk to people about uh, psychosis, especially early psychosis, I always go out and I say, has anyone here ever had a song stuck in their head? Everyone's hand um, raises because everyone's had that experience. And to me, that's an auditory experience that no one else can hear. (laughs) It's a hallucination if you want to call it that. It's something that can be a very annoying experience. It can be difficult to ignore sometimes, but we all have that experience. I think the difference with me and all the things that I was hearing is just the volume was much, much, much louder. It was more difficult to ignore by isolating a lot, by not having any other sort of stimulation going on in my life. That was all I could pay attention to. So it was really overwhelming. And, um, but I also feel 
that most people, if they pay attention to all that's going on in their brains and really, really focus in, you will hear a lot of stuff. You will hear random voices. You will hear chatter. You will hear things that don't make sense, you know, and things talking directly to you. And of course, thoughts and thoughts that are not in your own voice. So I really relate a lot of this stuff to what other people can experience. Um, and for me, it's just been about trying to create an environment where it doesn't become overwhelming for me, so that it be can become something that I can ignore, like the rest of the population ignores. I had a therapist that worked with me on becoming grounded and becoming actually in my body. Uh, so he worked with me for a long time to really help me come out of some of those catatonic states. And then part of it was surrounding myself around people that didn't feel toxic to me, didn't yell, didn't have the arguments. Still to this day, if I'm in an argument or somebody snaps at me, I will disconnect. I will go and I will retreat into that place. Um, and I just shut off really having to create a, a life that I, I could feel safe in. What kinds of obstacles are you running up against in trying to bring a different way of working into the mental health system? One of the most challenging things that I've faced in working with families is that people doubt my experience that what I have gone through is not of the magnitude that their sons or daughters have gone through, that I'm, you know, somehow different or I was never really that, you know, ill to begin with. I have to say to them, like, they're seeing me at the best I'm ever doing in my life. I never used to talk. I never used to come out of the house. I never used to connect with people. They're really seeing me recovered or for whatever that word means. It's somewhat offensive to me to be called, you know, I was part of the worried well, that I was not as sick as other people were. Saying to someone that is doing better now, that they were never once where these other people are, it really creates that there's no hope for recovery, that we're just somehow different. But I don't believe that. I believe we all, no matter where we have been, no matter what we're experiencing, there's a hope for us all. There was definitely times where I was just in the midst of it and like thinking that this is a really, really painful experience that life is not worth living. But if I could go back and tell myself, you know, what I experience now, that's, that's part of why I do what I do is to speak with the younger generation and be like, it gets better that these things are and can be temporary, that life does change and it, it will be different. It will get better. Dina, tell us about the Mandala Project in the Bay Area, which is about creating a whole new system of responding to people who are in crisis. What we're trying to do is create a different way of working with people in these experiences. We would have it completely staffed by people with lived experience of extreme states of consciousness. So every entry point into the traditional mental health system also offering an alternative exit point to our system. So we're going to offer a peer-run respite for people that are wanting to avoid a hospitalization. They notice that something's going on in their lives that, you know, they're maybe headed into a crisis, but really want to avoid the crisis. So they just need a short term to get out of their situation. We also are going to offer a 
Psychosis Sanctuary, similar to Soteria House, it used to be here in the Bay Area, to work with people that are in their first episode of psychosis and working with them to get them through their experience without medication um, or a very, very limited um, amount of medication. I feel I was lucky in having a place to come off of my medications where I was taken care of. I was fed healthy organic food and was given that time and that opportunity to try coming off my meds. So really wanted to create a place that if somebody decides that this is their decision, they are going to walk out that hospital door and they're going to come off of their meds. You know, and we really wanted to address that revolving door that somebody keeps coming off their meds, ending up back at the hospital, the hospital puts them on their meds, then they come off of their meds. You know, if if they're really not going to take the meds, we want to be able to work with them to have them come off in a safe way. So one of the key things about the Mandala Project is this approach called being with. And it's a way of just energetically supporting the person. You're not challenging them. You're not trying to get them to agree with what your um, experience of reality is. You're really trying to support them in their experience and go with them through the experience alongside them. Dean, are you hopeful that this vision of a new mental health system will actually start to take hold and grow and become successful? Absolutely. The more that I've talked with people about this vision, it's been really amazing to see how much it just clicks with people. They're like, yes, this makes sense. This is what is missing within our current approaches in mental health. We have this system where people are falling through the cracks. People are not getting the services that they need or want. And, you know, they just end up in the hospital back and forth and then may be traumatized by the system then become reluctant to seeking services and then they don't want any help how do you then get people the help that they may need when they're struggling what's currently happening is the push to have more force which would be assisted outpatient treatment and force people into treatment the mandala project is looking to provide a different alternative for people, a place that people can go, that it's a loving environment, that they can be supported with whatever experience that they're going through, no matter how extreme um, it may be. The Mandala Project is important to me because it's a place that I wish I would have had. I found out a lot of years later after my hospitalization, I went back to grand rounds at the outpatient clinic where I was being seen because I wanted to have my diagnosis removed. So I presented my case and how I had figured out the meaning of life. And one of the graduate students that was at this grand rounds said, you know, have you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You know, that's basically what you're talking about. This um, has already been discovered. So I was like, okay, well, what I had come up with has already been discovered. Okay, well, thanks. Um, But they still wouldn't remove my diagnosis. After that meeting, I think actually a few years later, I decided to look up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what I had called 
you know, becoming the supreme human being that you're meant to be, he called self-actualization. This is taught in every psychology course. How come at the hospital when I went in and I was just trying to explain this to every single psychologist that I saw, every single psychiatrist, I was trying to explain to them the meaning of life. And I didn't understand why none of them could have told me about Maslow's hierarchy of needs back then. They, they could have given me a book and, you know, I would have just been like, oh, okay, somebody else thought of this. <laughs> so in your altered state, you discovered this incredibly powerful vision of the meaning of life, which it turned out is actually something that as also was independently developed by very famous psychologist, Abraham Maslow, and he called it the hierarchy of needs and it's taught to psychologists and in textbooks all throughout psychology but when you were going through your state no one made that connection for you no one helped you to understand the meaning of what your vision was of the meaning of life right they just looked at it all that it's a delusion that basically everything that i was coming up with was something that you don't you shouldn't listen to because it was meaningless that everything that i said had no value and how would the Mandala project that you and, and the people you're working with are proposing for the Bay Area, how would that have treated you differently with your vision of this meaning of life? So our idea is that when you come into the Mandala project, someone is there to guide you. So they actually will sit down and listen to what you're saying. They won't ignore it. They won't tell you it's fake. It's not real. It's meaningless. A lot of times what somebody is trying to figure out, they're um, trying to force it on other people, but often it's the message for themselves that they're trying to get to and trying to sort out. And so this big vision, this big discovery, the meaning of life was basically telling me that I also needed to work on my self-esteem. I needed to have some sense of love for my own self in order to be part of humanity. Dina, how do people get in touch with you and how can they find out more about the San Francisco Bay Area Mandala Project? So we have a website. It's called the Bay Area Mandala Project.org. I can also be contacted. I started the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network, Bay Area Hearing Voices at gmail.com. And I also work with Prep Alameda County, and that's askprep.org. Dina Tyler, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Dina Tyler. She's a survivor of a diagnosis of bipolar and psychosis. She's the coordinator of peer and family support services at an early intervention agency for psychosis in Alameda, California. She's also the co-founder of the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network and co-director of the Bay Area Mandala Project. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>